Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. I've recently started a new business called Bia that helps women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, irregular periods, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Candace Nelson, to our show today. Candace is a serial entrepreneur and a New York Times bestselling author. She's well known for co-founding Sprinkles, the world's first cupcake bakery and ATM, and most recently Pizana, a fast-growing chain of award-winning pizzerias. Candace is an expert in turning one's passion into a profitable business and has a book launching on November 8th called Sweet Success, a simple recipe to turn your passion into profit. I had a sneak peek of the book and I loved it and we're going to be talking talking all about it today. Some of the highlights include steps Candace took when she was feeling completely lost and unhappy in her career, the questions she asked herself when it came to finding her purpose and passion. We'll talk all about her entrepreneurial journey with Sprinkles and how she launched very nimbly from her kitchen and the biggest lessons she learned along the way how we as women can get over imposter syndrome, which holds 60% of us back from starting businesses, which is crazy, and the importance of developing your risk tolerance and constantly getting outside your comfort zone and so much more. Welcome to the show, Candice. It is delightful to be here. Well, I'm thrilled. There is a lot that I want to talk about today. So I'm going to jump right in. And I'd actually love to start with your life growing up. You were a little bit of a rebel, which I love. And you got (laughs) sent to detention a few times. So tell me, why were you getting sent to detention? And do you still consider yourself a rebel today? (laughs) I think most entrepreneurs consider themselves rebels to a certain extent. I just wanted to do things my way, whether it was arrive at class exactly when I wanted to, be a few minutes late, or just focus on the things that really interested me, right? And I was at a very traditional, rigorous academic institution in boarding school, and I just felt a little out of place. I was more creative probably than most of my peers, and the things that were really revered and sort of held up as being the model of the type of student that my school admired was were things like academic achievement and, you know, sports achievement. And I was more sort of a thespian and I wanted to pursue more creative ideas. So I felt a little out of place. Yeah. And I know also, in addition to that, you guys moved around a lot. So not only were you in a place, I know you were in boarding school where you felt like it wasn't your culture and what you wanted to fit in with, but You also moved around quite a bit. So tell me more about how you think that shaped really the character of who you were as a young woman. So as a little girl, I grew up a lot of my years overseas. I moved generally every few years. If I wasn't moving with my family, someone else in the expat community was moving. So I had a lot of my friendships weren't very long lasting. And so I was constantly being introduced to new schools, um, trying to make new friends, find new kids to sit next to at the lunch table. 
And I think that helped me to develop a real sense of independence. And it was lonely at times, but I definitely learned to count on myself. I just, you know, had to entertain myself a lot of the time and not be intimidated by new environments. Yeah. And similar to you, we moved around a lot. And I think it gives us the characteristic of being a chameleon and just kind of like meshing with whoever you're around because you had to adapt so mm -hmm. much. So I appreciate you sharing that. So now I'm going to fast forward a little bit. In your early 20s, you were dealing with mild depression and felt completely lost in your career. I'm sure this will resonate with a lot of people that are listening. But take us back to this time and really how you overcame one of the lowest moments in your life. So I had, even though I was a rebel, I still kind of did what I was supposed to do, right? So I got through boarding school. I went to a great college. I then decided I was going to take on the world of finance as a woman. And I was recruited into an investment bank. I did that. It was the height of the dot-com boom in the late 90s. I was in San Francisco working with tech companies and then went to work at an internet startup like so many people were doing at the time. And then sure enough, the dot-com bust happened. So just like that, I was out of a job and I was kind of looking around like, wait, I did everything right. I did everything I was supposed to do, even though I didn't always want to. And here I am out of a job. And I didn't really know what to do with myself. Then fast forward a few months later, 9-11 happened. So I was out of a job and also being faced with this great tragedy. Mm. And it was the first time in my life that I reflected on what it was I actually wanted to do, as opposed to what was sort of this traditional path to success. Yeah. And I realized I did not like crunching numbers. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And, and I wanted to do something that brought me some joy. We spent so many hours of our life working, mm -hmm. particularly in investment banking or as an entrepreneur. Yeah. I wanted to do something that brought me joy. And that actually gave back a little bit to the world in some small way. I mean, my way was very small. It was a small piece of cake. But as I reflected, I realized that I wanted to go to pastry school instead mm -hmm. of business school. And this was a really big, dramatic left turn for me yeah. because everyone just expected all of my peers were going to business school. This was the next logical step for me. Education was very important in my family. And I just thought, oh, I'm going to go bake. It sounds amazing. I'd been in San Francisco, you know, such a great food city. I'd grown up baking with my mom. It had always been a passion of mine. It had always been a weekend hobby. But I didn't know that I could make a career out of it. Yeah. And what's interesting, what I appreciate, I also did the grind of banking and I actually lost myself and I didn't even know what my passion was because I was just so stuck in the grind of go, go, go and doing what other people's expectations were. So I appreciate that you still kind of maintain your hobby of baking on the weekends and knew yourself. But I'm curious, you know, so many people, similar to how I was, have a hard time getting clear on their passions and what really lights them up. Mm -hmm. What questions did you ask yourself when you were searching for your passion? Or what do you recommend people do who might not be as clear as you were, but in a tough time and wanting to do a transition? At least in my experience, I mean, thinking back to what you like to do as a child is a good place to start. I was overseas, homesick, longing for those tastes of home, like those classic American treats. And I, spent hours in the kitchen baking with my mom and didn't have a model, I guess, with the exclusion of Mrs. Fields, someone who had really, and then of course, Martha Stewart, but had made a living in the domestic arts or baking. That just wasn't what I envisioned for my future. 
But thinking back to what you like to do as a child, thinking about what you actually are interested in, what you like to do, is there ever a time that you find yourself in a state of flow where you're sort of forgetting that time exists? Things that really light you up and taking the time to play and explore and get outside yourself to kind of hone in on what it is that really fuels you. I love that. And I think just being intentional and taking the time, like you said, to play and explore is so key. And for you, you know, you had to kind of do that because you were laid off. So it's just a good reminder, like, how can you carve out that time to be still to really reflect on what you want to do? And so I think that's a really great point. You know, we actually had a woman on the podcast. We launched her interview this week, actually. And she said, sometimes there are cases where you shouldn't follow your passion Mm -hmm. and your passion shouldn't be your business. Mm -hmm. I'd love to get your thoughts around that, too. I totally agree. Not every passion is going to translate into a great business. And I knew that. And that's why I wanted to test my interest in baking by going to pastry school first. That really was a big test for me. I mean, of course, baking was fun on the weekends, you know, baking up cakes and taking them to friends and having them, you know, shower, shower me with praise was super creative and fun and fulfilling. But would I really like it if I had to get up every morning and put on my chef whites and get up at the crack of dawn and bake all day. It's physically grueling work. And it's not always super creative if you're just having to produce a certain product all the time. So what I figured is that I did love it. I really did. I got in that pastry kitchen every day and and just loved being surrounded by the smells of cakes baking. And I loved creating something tangible that I could give to someone mm. and watch them enjoy it was so different to what I had been doing. I felt like I was good at it and that that differentiated me and that made me feel good. Yeah. And I don't know if a lot of people know this, but from doing research on you, I believe it took you about two years to really incubate the idea of Mm. sprinkles before you open the store versus just like baking cupcakes and launching. So tell me more about what you were trying to get right before you officially launched and put sprinkles out into the world. Well, I was doing something different. It's hard to imagine now because there are upscale (laughs) cupcakes everywhere. But at the time, it Cupcakes were really something that you found in the supermarket bakery. They were packaged in plastic clamshells. They were very generic and basic. And my idea was to really brand the cupcake and elevate it, make it aspirational, make it giftable. So I knew if I was going to do that and go all in on cupcakes, I had to really make the product exceptional. I had to nail the flavors. I had to really nail the brand so that I could differentiate myself among a sea of what would be competitors. So my husband actually looked at me and I give him a lot of credit because he was working in the finance world as well, but he had an MBA and decided that he would be my co-founder in this crazy venture. But he looked at me and he said, if we're going all in on cupcakes, they better be really good. And so I set about just creating a whole menu of flavors, but it wasn't overnight. You know, I went into the kitchen and I would make up 10 different batches of vanilla, bring them back to the dining room table. Charles and I would taste them as if we were wine sommeliers, you know, making our notes. And I'd go back into the kitchen and tweak and tweak and tweak. And at the same time, you know, if I was creating an upscale cupcake, I had to elevate the brand and the aesthetic of the cupcake as well. Mm-hmm. Leaning into what was a sprinkles cupcake going to look like? And that meant reinventing the sprinkle itself, too, which was that modern dot that sat on top. You're right. It's, it's so funny because we know you and there's so many companies that have copied you. And it's amazing to think that you're at the forefront of completely elevating the entire aspect of the cupcake, which is fascinating. So, you know, you're in the kitchen. Your husband decides to join you as a co-founder. At what point did you realize you really nailed the concept? Was it you two just kind of in your kitchen figuring that out yourself? Or were you sharing it with friends and family who would give you feedback along the way? 
So at this time, we'd moved down to Los Angeles to bet it all on cupcakes. And I had a few friends down here that were just kind of taking pity on me, placing their <laughs> orders from time to time. And I would show up at every party I was invited to with my cupcakes, with my business cards. Yes, business cards in tow. And I just generously gifted my product all over town. And before I knew it, people started calling me who I couldn't even place. They couldn't tell me how they'd found my card or what party they'd been at. They weren't friends of mine that which I was sure huge. of, which yeah. is huge. Yeah. And that was sort of when I realized I had some traction, that my idea of delicious upscale cupcakes wasn't just completely mad. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think, you know, I'm curious, before you were getting that traction with other people and gifting it to others, did you and your husband say, you know what, whether this works out or not, we're going to give ourselves a year or two years runway of Mm -hmm. going all in? Like, how do you think about the risk that might be involved with launching Sprinkles? I think our runway was just our resources, our finances. (laughs) You know, we pooled whatever money we had at the time. Sprinkles was completely bootstrapped. And we lived modestly in a rental in West Hollywood. And poured all of our money into this business. Money started getting tight after a while because it took us a while to find a retail location. Um, We had no experience. And so landlords don't really like that. They also didn't like our idea. There was a landlord who hung up on me. I remember that was fun. Oh my gosh. So nobody really thought our idea was bound for success, particularly at the height of the low carb craze, you know, betting it all on, on a temple to carbs was not a very logical idea. So yeah, we gave ourselves about two years and we were at the end of that two-year period of time. And it was just sort of in the nick of time that we opened our doors and fortunately found success. There was a line from day one. Oh, amazing, which we'll dig into a little bit. But one thing I want to highlight about the way you launched Sprinkles that I'd love for you to talk more about is the importance of launching nimbly on Mm -hmm. your idea, right? Which I'm a huge fan of. So can you tell me more about what that looked like for you and in the early days of Sprinkles? Sure. Well, for me, launching nimbly for Sprinkles was me testing the market out of my kitchen, my West Hollywood kitchen, and getting that for a while, it was that push into the world, right? Sort of gifting my product everywhere. And then after a while, I felt this pull and this natural pull. And that was sort of the product market fit, right? To use a tech term and apply it to cupcakes. But that was what kind of gave me the confidence that I had some traction and there was appetite for my product. Hey, everyone. It's Yasmin here. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours in banking and then in tech. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth and dreaming of always building my own empire. With all of this stress, it came really debilitating periods from bloating, cramping, extreme breast tenderness and really unpredictable moods. I would always complain to my friends that I was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month. And that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. That's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. I started working with functional medicine doctors who told me that years of stress combined with taking birth control pills long-term created a cascade of hormonal damage in my body. This is why I felt bloated, tired, crampy, and moody before and throughout my period. They recommended I try something called seed cycling. And let me tell you, it's changed my life. 
Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. But I also noticed that seed cycling is actually kind of hard to do. I wanted the best quality seeds freshly ground in the right amount, but it was very time consuming. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds in the right amounts with the right support. It's called Bia, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Now anyone struggling with hormonal imbalances can easily incorporate seed cycling into their busy schedule with the Bia Seed Cycling Bundle. This process has been life-changing for me. I no longer deal with cramps, bloating, breast tenderness, or any other PMS symptoms before my period. It's been a complete game changer, and it's allowed me to focus on things that matter most to me, like this podcast and building my own empire. And most importantly, I want this for you too. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening. And now let's get back to the show. Yeah. And how important, I mean, you also are an investor and you meet with so many entrepreneurs. And I think sometimes people want to spend too much money before you even have this product Mm. market fit. So I know you were also very scrappy in the early days, but how important is that even for the people that you invest in or you even mentor? I think it's really important to start with one product and really test the market, find that hero product. And also, listen, Sprinkles was a good example of this too, is owning a niche, right? And being known for something and being... So people associate you with something and will turn to you. But speaking directly to a smaller demographic, a target market that you really resonate with is going to help you in the long term because they become your brand ambassadors and start to really spread the word for you. Yes, I love this. And that actually takes me to this other question. And you wrote in your book that in the early days of Sprinkles, it was so important not to be everyone's cup of tea. And I know Mm. that was tough for you. Mm -hmm. So tell me more about that, because that just kind of reminded me in terms of how you really dominated a specific niche and you cannot please everyone all the time. So (laughs) tell me more about how you went through that journey. So true. When I was working out of my West Hollywood apartment, I was baking a lot of cupcakes for events. I actually met with some party planners and they were always ordering for me for various very high-end kids' birthday parties as well as bridal showers and the like. So I was doing a lot of custom decorations and that's how people knew me in the beginning. And that was something I thought would translate onto a larger scale when we opened the store. But when we opened and there was a line out the door and we couldn't even get cupcakes into people's hands, much less creating the mixing the fondant and punching out the decorations and, and making the cupcakes just perfect... We had to make the very early decision that custom decorations, no more, right? So I think I felt like I was letting down those early customers because they had been the ones that truly launched me and they had buoyed my confidence in my idea and I didn't want to let them down. And of course, I was working in hospitality and hospitality is all about pleasing people. So I 
am a people pleaser anyway. But beyond that, I was in the business of pleasing people. So that was a hard decision to make. That is hard. And it actually, I'm glad you're saying that because even for my business, there are customers, especially when you're so early, like those sales are so important. They're like part of your family. And they're like, hey, can you make this exception? I'm like, no problem. I'll bend over backwards. But at a certain point, especially at the level you are with scaling, that must just be an operational disaster. And there's like, (laughs) I can't even imagine what you guys were going through. So reading some of the notes as well, in your first week of business, I believe your expectation was you would sell 500 cupcakes. Mm -hmm. You ended up selling 2000. I know you mentioned there was a long line out the door. What really helped create that awareness? Was it purely word of mouth and just how you were gifting it? Or how'd you really get the word out there that we now have the store and sprinkles and come join us? So I sold 2000 cupcakes, but that was only because I couldn't produce more. I was working out of little mixers. My recipes yielded one to two dozen because my thought was that people would come in and buy a cupcake or two, but they were buying two or three dozen. So our cupcake case was constantly bare. But the thing that there were two things that really got us started. One was this built in customer base that already knew me and wanted to show up and support me from day one. But there was also an email newsletter that went out on day one called Daily Candy. I don't know if anyone who's listening to this remembers that. (laughs) But wow, an early lesson in the power of email marketing. Those daily candy followers showed up and they formed that line. And then I think the fact that there was so much scarcity actually ended up fueling desire even more, right? Mm, There was a sense of FOMO. There was a sense of, what do you mean there's a cupcake shop that charges $3 for a cupcake and you can't even get your hands on one? That really played into a certain human psychology that ended up fueling demand I don't recommend it. I don't recommend selling out of your product that you're so desperately trying to sell because it may not work in your favor. I think people gave us a second chance because I was just in there working as hard as I could. I was like, had my baseball hat on. I was like baking batch after batch after cupcakes. And I just authentically and genuinely was doing my best. And I think that goes a long way. People were mad. They had driven into Beverly Hills. They'd parked their car. They'd waited in line to buy no cupcakes or to be capped to just one cupcake, right? But the fact that I was there apologizing, working my best, working my hardest to make it happen. And what's interesting about this, I have a lot of friends who are in the food business. And like you were just mentioning, you were behind the scenes helping create the cupcakes. Mm -hmm. You're trying to meet the demand. On top of that, you're being customer service, trying to make sure everyone is okay. How do you stay motivated in that process? Because sometimes when you have those consecutive days of just long nights pushing forward, you know, creating these cupcakes, Mm -hmm. it could be very exhausting Mm -hmm. and affect your mental health. So how do you kind of maintain that passion during that time or any tips that you did during that phase of really your life at Sprinkles? I think sometimes when you're launching something into the world, there's no such thing (laughs) as balance. I know that's not a very popular thing to say these days, and I do believe in the power of mental health, but there's some times when you just have to give it 150% and sleep on the bakery floor, which is what we did. And there were some days where I thought I was going to die. And, you know, I would take my few hours away from the bakery and Charles would call me. He'd be like, put on your browns, which was, you know, our uniform was all brown. Put on your browns because somebody just called out and it's you're on time (sighs) to come back in. And I was like, no, how am I going to make this happen? But I think when you are aligned with a larger vision, you're aligned with what you're doing in your work. There's a deeper purpose and why to what you're doing. And all of your efforts are going towards something that is for you. I mean, that there's nothing more fulfilling than that. You can kind of plug into a, a bigger battery pack, so to speak, of that passion and that purpose and make it happen. 
And did you find it hard to find people to work with on this journey when you guys were growing so quickly, just to kind of maintain the stamina and be with you during that time? I think yes and no. I think we were so passionate about what we were doing and we were having so much fun doing it that we really attracted those like-minded people to us. And we had such an incredible company culture. I mean, we really kind of brought this startup mentality to a bakery. It was like a do whatever it takes because this wasn't your normal bakery environment. I mean, we were drinking from a fire hose from the moment we opened till the moment we closed. And then, of course, as soon as we opened and this idea that everybody said wouldn't work was a success, then all of a sudden competition started springing up so quickly and so furiously. Mm -hmm. And so we were just constantly, you know, we're on the offensive, but then also on the defensive. And it was super intense. So it was this energy that really brought our team together, but also just drew in a certain type of person. Sure. No, that makes sense. And you guys were like very novel. You had the momentum, but it's finding the right people who are aligned with that Mm -hmm. vision and what you're doing. I will say sometimes where we did misstep is where we looked at bringing in outsiders who maybe had a lot of hospitality experience and maybe had worked at businesses that we really admired in the restaurant world and thought they would have all the answers, right? And then when we brought them in, a lot of times it didn't work. They were used to doing something a certain way, you know, sort of legacy way that one does in a bakery or restaurant. And we had completely created our own way of doing things that were pretty innovative. Mm -hmm. And it really was much more about passion and company culture in the end than experience. That's helpful. I think it's just good for anyone who's really running an early stage business Mm -hmm. to to kind of think about because sometimes you're like, I'll pay top dollar for someone who has experience, Mm -hmm. but they might not be the right fit for the way you're running things. Yeah. And one thing you mentioned, which I find fascinating, you were talking about there was so much competition in the early days. And when you have this new innovative idea, that is automatically what's going to happen. So I'm curious because I believe there was something you said on Instagram where you're like, if there's one thing I wish I would have done differently, it was not pay attention too much to competition. Maybe I said it differently, but tell me more about this because I think a lot about it, even in anything that we're up to Mm -hmm. as well. I think it's important to know what the competition is up to, but I was so surprised and taken aback by how quickly people jumped onto this cupcake thing because I had heard, I just spent two years trying to tell people that this idea was a great one and everyone telling me it would never work, right? And so to launch it into the world and be like, have five minutes where I could enjoy it before I was then protecting my turf. And now I realize, wow, that was incredibly naive of me. If you have something successful, of course, competition and emulation is going to follow. I think you have to, when you're launching something out into the world, even though it's, you know, you're thinking a few steps ahead, you have to already be thinking about that. So. I kind of was taken off my game a little bit in terms of, oh my gosh, there's that cupcake shop and now there's that cupcake shop. And I should have just been entirely focused on what I was doing and staying ahead of the competition and innovating, which of course we ended up doing with the cupcake ATM and many more things. But I just wouldn't have paid as much attention to the competition. Yeah. And I think what you said is important. I just want to underscore. It's like if you're coming up with a new way of doing something, having that expectation that people are going to come in, especially if you're successful, it's just good to have in your brain. So you're not cut off card and (laughs) you are just continuing to innovate. And I'm sure also branding. There's so many things that people, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's no one that is like you, right? Like Candace, Mm -hmm. the way you're showing up, the way you're leading the team, they may not necessarily have that in their own business. And I think that's a big superpower that you individually have. So I think that's key. And 
One thing that I'd love to get your thoughts on also is a story that in your book that actually really resonated with me. It's actually an important lesson that you and your husband learned from your father-in-law when it came to planning. <laughs> so please tell me more about this story because I have a lot of questions around this. Chuck, we love Chuck. <laughs> Chuck is such a gift as my father-in-law, but also to our business sprinkles. Charles and I were running around like chickens with our heads cut off. We were so protective of this business. We had so many operational challenges that we couldn't figure out, but we were so in the weeds, we didn't have time to sort of think about them. And he saw us running around and he just said, I'm going to come help you. He was formerly the CEO of a bank and he had been doing a lot of financial advising of larger companies, not startups necessarily. But he was like, you guys need me, you know, take yourselves out of the bakery for one day. We thought, oh my God, how are we even going to do that? And he showed up with his flip charts and just took us completely out of the weeds and helped us really distill down what the problems were that were preventing us from scaling and reaching our goals. And he's a big fan of Peter Drucker. And he just, even though he didn't understand the bakery industry, doesn't really matter, right? When you distill down the business ideas, there's only a few things that can prevent you despite the industry that you're in. Yeah. And I think this is something that a lot of entrepreneurs deal with. You're just hands-on making things work. And even with me knowing the right thing to do is to zoom out and deal with like the strategic problems just to be more effective in your business, it's so hard to get out of it. So I'm curious, after you had that one experience with your father-in-law really mapping out the issues to be more efficient that one day, is this something that you maintain moving forward or? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Every now and again, even now with Pizzana, which is my current business, I'll say to Chuck, Chuck, we need a planning session. We need a planning session. And he's he's super excited to do it. It's harder to get my husband to sit down and, and <laughs> have his dad tell him what he should That's be doing true. in business. <laughs> That's true. I can't imagine that if it was my dad. I'd be like, what are you talking about? There's a little about? bit of marital therapy going on in there too. A couple's therapy. It's it's everything. It's Yeah. But I guess, you know, what I'm learning from this is just maybe even having somebody that's not part of your business who is just going to be, whether it's an advisor or a friend, somebody to show up and whiteboard with you who's not part of the day-to-day is important. Absolutely. Be able to write down your goals and how you're going to get there and sort of quantify them and hold you accountable. Yeah, the accountability aspect. And I think about this a lot because you were self-funded. I'm self-funded. We don't have investors, right? Typically, the investors are who you lean on. So that's been a lot of what I'm thinking. I'm like, I need to create a network or friends or people who are doing what I'm doing because there's so much potential I think we have, but I don't have that mentor with every step that we hit. So Mm -hmm. just having someone like a Chuck or someone in your network who can sit with you, especially if you don't have a board or advisors, it seems like is really critical in your business. Mentorship is so important. In fact, I mentor a baker on the East Coast and she reached out to me on Instagram, just DM'd me and we developed this relationship and I've been mentoring her on the side. And then I learned I wasn't the only mentor. I was one of many and she had sought out mentors for, you know, specific parts of her business. I love that. Which is genius. It's like having a board of advisors, but it's having a personal board of mentors. And I think that's such a great idea. And that's brilliant. And can I ask if she, did she give you equity or is she paying you or is it purely just mentorship? It's mentorship. And whenever you have time or whatnot, depending on your schedule. Yes. She's very respectful of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think being respectful of someone's Mm -hmm. time, building the relationship with someone before you even do the ask, right? Because I'm sure you get a lot of people being like, Candice, what are your thoughts? Or can you get involved with this? But yes. And she even, you know, I interviewed her for my book, Sweet Success. And she talks about how it really, you have to develop that relationship first, engage with the person's content online and also come to them with 
knowing their story, knowing who they are, showing respect and showing respect for the fact that they're busy and, and they don't have a lot of time. Being yeah. pointed in your questions, I think, can be really helpful, too. Yeah. And I think that's key because mm -hmm. you're so busy, right? It's mm -hmm. like you're willing to help but be very specific about how you can <laughs> add value. I get questions. You know, I'm still on my journey. But I'm happy to share along the way, but it's super broad. And that's why I was just mm -hmm. telling you, I love your book because it goes into the nitty gritty. In a quick voice note, I can't share everything they need to do, right? So right. just going back to like being pointed about your question mm -hmm. is super helpful for someone who's like in the middle of building who wants to share their insights. So I, good for that yeah. woman that you're mentoring. I'm going to have to look her up and be friends with her. I love it. Yeah, she's she's great. And her product is great. Blondery Bakery. Look her up. Blondery Bakery. Amazing. Amazing. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit. So you've also shared that selling your business was actually much more difficult than you expected. Mm -hmm. What was really going on at that point in your life? So Charles and I were very hands-on with our business. We knew that the details counted and the details mattered. Company culture was paramount. And so with every location that we opened, we would basically move to that location to hire, train all of our people and make sure that our product was on point, the culture was on point, and everything had that sprinkles ethos. So when my boys were little, that was easy because they were portable and I could go and it wasn't a big deal. But as they started to get older and enter school and have commitments like sports and birthday parties and that sort of thing, that was a lot harder for me. And so I basically had to make a very hard but personal decision that maybe the company had sort of outgrown my skill set and my level of being able to give it all I could give it, right? I, I was raising a family at that point and I didn't want to be traveling all the time. And, you know, the best time to step away from a company is when things are going really well, as hard as that can be. So Sprinkles was growing like crazy. It was doing really well. And my husband and I made the decision to sell the, a majority of the business to private equity. And that I'm sure was not easy for mm -mm. you to just be reflective of what your needs are at the time. And you guys were so hands-on in the process. But was your husband kind of on board with that as, as well? Or was it like this long journey of just there's so much self-reflection and emotions that are involved in that? It, it's essentially your first child. It was our first right? child. And we were helicopter parents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was not initially on board. Yeah. He was not initially on board. He was focused on cupcake world domination. But he came around. He came around. Yeah, yeah. And I know, I mean, we've had a lot of amazing women on the podcast who've also sold their businesses. One thing that they wish they knew more about was the identity crisis that you have with something that you are living and breathing for years, right? And a lot of them went into depression. So I'm curious, how did you kind of deal or were you dealing with any type of identity crisis? And Sprinkles was really just who you were. And you mm -hmm. were really the face of the brand mm -hmm. as well. Oh, yes. I was so identified with the business. I I knew I was identified with the business and I knew it would be hard. But even then, it was harder than I could have anticipated. I felt very unmoored. I felt very lost. And I didn't have my next plan set up. I think if I'd known then to sort of have a plan to maybe start investing right away or start a fund to kind of keep my finger in this world of startups so that I would have something to pour my energies into right away. But really, my focus at the time was to spend some time with my family because I had spent the last decade of my life building this business and being on the road and filming Cupcake Wars and being gone for weeks at a time for that. So I really wanted to spend some time with my family. And I don't regret that at all. But I think I should have done a better job of planning for post sprinkles. Yeah. And I know you break all that in your book, mm -hmm. which is why another benefit of just all your lessons and learnings <laughs> that you have in your Thank amazing you. career there. 
So I want to shift gears a little bit. You mentioned in your book that if entrepreneurship boils down to one thing, it's betting on yourself. Mm. So this sounds so straightforward, yet so many people struggle with this. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? I think women sometimes have a problem with confidence, even imposter syndrome, like 60% of women I've heard have delayed starting a business because they have imposter syndrome. And so I'm really interested in this because it's not just related to entrepreneurship. It's everyone in every industry struggles with it. Some of the biggest names in Hollywood and in the world of sports have imposter syndrome. So I think, you know, for women in particular, we are conditioned from an early age to maybe sometimes feel like we don't belong because we don't necessarily see models that look like us in positions of power. But in terms of building that confidence, I think it's just about continuing to challenge yourself, you know, doing things that are scary all the time, leaning into that growth mindset and challenging yourself and and becoming more comfortable with the uncomfortable. I think that's sort of those are the building blocks to confidence. It sounds simple, but being uncomfortable, even in the smallest of situations, right? Like you mentioned a ton of examples in the book, but like showing up to an event that you might not know anybody, right? It right. sounds easy, but it's like you kind of condition yourself to be in these new situations. Yes. And you build that confidence to eventually bet on yourself. And That's right. I think it's super key. And, you know, you did mention a stat and it also just is wild that 60 percent of mm-hmm. women delay starting a business because of imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Like we need to change that in some way or how. But what are your tips on taming that imposter syndrome and getting to the root of feeling unworthy? Well, I think it does help, first and foremost, to know that you're not alone, right? If you are struggling with it, just rest assured, there are people who have had great success who are also struggling with it. And just knowing you're not alone can help. But in terms of other things to get over imposter syndrome, I think it really is about celebrating your wins. And we're not going to have big wins every day. So it can be about celebrating your small wins. I think I always do a great job of focusing on what I do wrong or what I haven't done very well. And I like to sort of self-flagellate and that's so fun. But (laughs) why not just celebrate what we've done right and focus on that? And sometimes if, if you can't figure out what that is, ask a friend. You know, our friends are always the ones to think the best of us and know our strengths and know what we're the best at. So ask a friend if you can't figure out what your wins are. It's true. And one thing that I thought was interesting is that you also mentioned you were dealing with imposter syndrome early days of sprinkles, which understands, but also when you made it, which I Mm. thought was fascinating. So I think it just goes back to you're not alone. Everybody deals with it. Even once you made it and you're successful, right? You Mm -hmm. were still kind of going through that. Well, I think it's also I just always want to be learning. Like I always want to be the dumbest person in the room. So sometimes my imposter syndrome is exactly spot on. It's not for no reason. It's because I'm constantly putting myself in situations that I'm fearful of and where I don't know anything because I feel like if you're not growing, you're dying. And it's particularly relevant for me on this sort of second half of my career to be growing and staying relevant. I mean, it'd be super easy to be resting on my laurels right now. In fact, sometimes... (laughs) I wish I did a little bit more. It sounds really <laughs> relaxing right about now. But no, I, I just there's something in me that just is instinctively drawn to putting myself in situations that scare me because I feel like that's the only way to, to grow. I love that. And I think just even talking about how maybe imposter syndrome isn't always bad because it's you putting yourself in these newer situations. And once you graduate and you feel comfortable, I'm very much like, I'm like, all right, what's next? And then you're like the stupidest person again with the room. But it's kind of fun and exciting. And when you look back and reflect and even your journey, there's so much that you've done because of that characteristic that you have. Exactly. Exactly. You have to be okay with not being good at stuff to be trying new things all the time. And 
So that's I'm very good at being humble in that way. I love it. It's your superpower. <laughs> so, you know, from your experience, from operating and you're investing in businesses as well and mentoring businesses, why do you think some founders, quote unquote, make it and some don't? Mm, well, there's a lot of reasons. But I think ultimately a founder has to have this sort of energy that draws people to them. They typically have a vision for the world that not everybody buys into. So it's about having that, my word for it is passion, obviously, but having that passion that will get an, an investor on board, will get someone to want to work for you, will galvanize a team behind you, will get customers to be interested in a product that they maybe haven't heard of before. I think it's it's really important. You want people who want to work for you. And there's that certain, it's almost hard to put your finger on, really. And what do you think are maybe some of the mistakes that you've seen founders make that might have not set themselves up well for their business? Well, I think, you know, not everybody's good at everything. So just being really honest about what you're good at and what you're not good at and hiring for the things that you're not as good at. And certainly making sure that someone on your team, if it's not you, has a real handle on the numbers because no business can grow without money. Amen. Amen. That's super important. And I'm curious, you know, whether it's Sprinkles or now with Pizana, because that's what you're up to now as well and many other things. But what would you say are some of your newer weaknesses that you've kind of hired a team in to support you in that? Well, just, I mean, even being able to hire a team when we started <laughs> Pizana versus being the only labor was really, really nice. So in terms of our weaknesses, you know, Charles and I really, we love creating a brand. So, and restaurants, even though it's still in the world of food and hospitality, running a restaurant is really different than what we did with Sprinkles. I mean, just having an, a dine-in experience and servers and working with alcohol, a really different environment. So we were able to hire experts Amazing. this time and really focus on what we do well, which is developing the brand and and also working with our partner, who really is Daniele Uditi, who is the face of the brand with Pizzana. I've been able to and having fun with encouraging his personal brand development, helped him co-create and executive produce a show in which he's the star on Hulu now called Best in Dough and just helping to guide him based on what I've been through. I love it. Wow. What a great place to be and to hire experts and, you know, in your round two of your life of what you're up to. It's Goals for sure. so nice <laughs> yeah. to have a little bit of money to start with. Yeah, 100%. And we we're talking a little bit about this before we started the interview, but you just mentioned personal brand and how mm. important it is also for yourself. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about that and why maybe you suggest a lot of people kind of tap into their personal brand. Yes. So I, back in the day, we weren't talking about personal brand in 2005, right? So I was in the back and cranking out my cupcakes and all of a sudden the TV cameras would show up and I'd have to sort of dust off powdered sugar and and get in front of the cameras. And I was sort of, you know, deer in headlights. And then uh, sure enough, the Food Network came knocking and all of a sudden I was on a TV show. So my personal brand was definitely on its way. And I realized the benefits of it because in such a noisy market, I mean, there's noise everywhere, but particularly back in the day, there were so many cupcake shops opening up. So how was I going to differentiate myself? It was about leaning into the Sprinkles brand and differentiating with my personal brand, showing up on TV every week as the founder of Sprinkles. That was just priceless, right? And not everybody can be on a TV show, but everybody has social media these days. It's so easy. And I think really essential to be thinking about your personal brand. I mean, even if you're not a founder, even if you work at a company, your personal brand is just how you show up in the world. And it helps build trust. And it helps with differentiating your product. And I think it's a competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. And I think people want to humanize a brand and know Mm. who's behind it, Mm. right? To add that layer of trust, because 
nowadays, there are so many people doing the same thing across the board. It's like, what really differentiates you and who's behind all this? So I think that's key. No, absolutely. People buy people. They want their brands humanized and they want that trust factor. And who better to do it than the founder? I'm always shocked. I, I had a woman send me her pitch deck the other week and I looked at her website and there was no, I immediately always go to our story or the yeah. about us page, right? Don't yeah. you? Yep. And there was nothing about her. And here's a female founder. There was no picture. There was nothing. I was like, hold on, this is, we got to start here and then we'll talk about your personal brand. But I think you, it's such a differentiator. You know, it's interesting because now I'm very much the face, me and my co-founder of the brand, but starting out, we weren't. And despite me having this podcast and kind of having somewhat of a personal brand. Yeah, this having, podcast is your brand. Yes, for sure. That helps a little bit. But mm-hmm. I wasn't thinking about it in terms of the business. But I wonder if it's more so we weren't even sure what the business was going to be mm. like. And maybe we were a little insecure. We weren't sure if they'd be product market fit. But now we really show up and we just see the resonance with our community. And it's actually very fun to connect with the customers mm-hmm. and really lean into that. So I don't know why we didn't do it early on, but I just now completely appreciate everything you're saying um, and really showing up because there's not anyone that's unique like you. And people love that, especially mm-hmm. like women founded businesses mm-hmm. like show up, put your face out there. We need more of us. No, exactly. And women have the spending power. I know I yeah. want to support other female founded businesses. So if you're one, like, let me know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Well, I want to close out this interview with one last question. And I'd love to ask you, what is a reminder you want to share with women listening today who might be inspired by your journey, but still aren't sure if they have what it takes to build their own empire? Well, first of all, you do. (laughs) While you're spending time doubting yourself, I promise you there are people who are admiring you for the things that you've accomplished. And as I said, celebrate your wins. There's a lot you've already been through that you're probably not giving yourself any credit for. But beyond that, I think it is really about nurturing your network. I was really fortunate to have a great co-founder who helped me and as an emotional support and confidence builder, and that was my husband. But that can be anyone. That can be your girlfriends. That can be a professional network of support or just a mastermind that you hand select of people who are in your industry, a mentorship board. So definitely lean on your support system and develop that confidence in yourself. It's already there. I love that. Well, Candice, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank Such an honor. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.